what I think the targeting of these symbols of imperialism does isn't simply start some kind of culture war. But in fact, it, what it does is it forces us to have a conversation about what how racism is rooted in these forms of colonial control. What I also want to take from his work and I hope that I'm contributing to is not creating this sort of um, hierarchy of, you know, the U.S. is more racist or France is more racist, but rather talking about how racism is manifest in differently organized societies, particularly, again, people racialize as black. Welcome, listeners, to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. Undersong represents a commitment to amplifying the space for listening to what gets too easily buried erased or forgotten. In listening to the uncomfortable legacies of empire and coloniality that shape the present, this podcast serves as a local and global platform to exchange critical thought around race and the making of worlds otherwise. This podcast emerges out of RACED, a cross-university network concerned with race, racialization, and decolonial studies from a multidisciplinary perspective. And the song, the Race Ed podcast, is alternately hosted by Shara Vadasaira, Nasser Mir, and myself, Katusha Bento. It receives curatorial and technical support by our dear Sophia Hoffinger and the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Today, I'm hosting Jean Beerman and Adam Elliott Cooper. Thank you both for being here. I'm going to introduce them briefly. Jean Beeman is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, with affiliations in Black Studies, Political Science, Feminist Studies, Global Studies, and the Center for Black Studies Research. Her research is ethnographic in nature and focuses on race, ethnicity, racism, international migration, and state-sponsored violence in both France and the United States. She is author of Citizen Outsider, Children of North African Immigrants in France, published by University of California Press in 2017. And Adam Elliott Cooper is a lecturer in public and social policy at Queen Mary. He received his PhD from the School of Geography and Environment uh, from University of Oxford in 2016. He has previously worked as a researcher in the Department of Philosophy at UCL, as a teaching fellow in the Department of Sociology in the University of Warwick, and as a research associate in the Department of Geography at King's College London. He has recently published a book called Black Resistance to British Police Policing, and along with many other amazing authors, he published Empires and Game, Racism and British State by Pluto Press. Both books he published this year. And for those who are listening from outside the UK, it's important to say that he's regularly uh, featuring in broadcast and print media discussing issues relating to policing and racism in Britain, including Sky News, BBC News, Channel 4, BBC Radio 4, and The Guardian. 
So he's a quite popular academic activist, and I usually follow him um, on all these interviews and interesting topics that he discusses. He also sits on the board of Monitoring Group, an anti-racist organization challenging state racism and, violent, and racial violence. The link for this group is going to be below the description of this podcast in case you would like to follow and understand a little bit more of this work. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Jean and Adam, um, it is really a pleasure to host you today, especially in a year when our brother Adam is launching two important books for the conversation. And some of this conversation, or most of the conversation, we're going to be talking in this episode. And I would like to highlight the, the importance of having a brother launching a book, or two books, uh, this year. Not only because of the political presence in the counter-narrative of colonial discourse, but situating the memory and legacy of African people in the diaspora away from this crystallized expectations and monolith of blackness. So I would like to situate the black presence in this conversation since it is part of our positionalities as researchers, as scholars, also as activists, if you identify as such. Um, and I would like to start with Jean, uh, because in the preface of your book, Citizen Outsider, you mentioned the presence of a, a raised and gendered body in the capital of France. And the title is A Black Girl in Paris. It is a brief section in which you situate your body as a marked presence in which nationality, race and gender intersect in a way to make your experience so particular to shed light to your reflection regarding your work. Nowadays, how do you navigate that in the everyday academia? How do you navigate that black girl embodiment uh, within your work? Yeah, thanks so much. And again, thanks for having me. And um, Adam, I'm a huge fan of your work. So it's great to be in conversation with you as well. Yeah, thanks for that question. So basically, I wrote the preface of the book partly as a way to answer the question that I get or I've received for over a decade as to why I study France. And I think that there's a lot of sort of assumptions people make uh, about what black scholars can study, whether in the United States or Europe or elsewhere. And I think part of the thing that I confronted or I have still confront multiple times is, you know, especially as a black American, as an African-American, is like, why are you studying minorities in France or blackness in France or blackness in Europe as opposed to studying black people in the United States? So I, I kind of wanted to start my book preempting that question because I, I get that question. I've gotten that question a billion times. Um, so that's one answer. That's one reason why I, I put that there. But the other reason actually is more to think um, about my own positionality as a black woman, as a black American woman doing this research. One, because like I came to this topic very, it's sort of a biographical interest or personal interest of mine as someone who had been uh, speaking French for several years and then did, you know, now 20 years ago now, a study abroad program as an undergraduate student and in Paris and lived with a, with a white French family. And among other things, it was very eye opening to me to under, to see how my black presence was read on the streets of Paris in different shops and stores. Um, some of which is very similar to how I have been and continue to be racialized here in the United States, you know, such as being sort of 
you know, followed around in stores with the presumption of criminality. But what was often very interesting to me is that as soon as I would speak uh, French with an obvious non-native accent, then the treatment would change or the sort of demeanor would change. And then I was a U.S. tourist, right? And so it just, you know, at a very young age, I was really, it really made me think about the intersections between racial identity and national belonging. And I also, um, I, you know, I'll just say kind of personally, I w- I'd never been or definitely wasn't at the time someone who was like a proud U.S. citizen. It's sort of it's something I took for granted. But then thinking about sort of what it means to have that citizenship, what it means to have that U.S. passport in a different society, and then how that interacts with blackness. Um, and then relatedly, during that time, I got really interested in the long history of African-American expatriates to Paris specifically, and this sort of, you know, the literal fact of it, but also I think more importantly, in some ways, the rhetorical work that that does. So I'm a huge fan of James Baldwin's writings, um, and just sort of thinking about kind of what it meant for African-Americans, like historically, to go to Paris and the sort of liberty and quotation marks that they experience relative to how, you know, Black French people were treated or and are treated. So I kind of, I, I see my interest in my work or my sort of my identity coming into that work as being part of a long line of Black Americans who travel to other places and reveal, you know, the racism there in conversation with the racism they experience in the United States. And one is that I think it's also really interesting to think about, um, as I mentioned, this sort of rhetorical work that the presence of African-American expatriates has done uh, to French society in the way that France continues to, I mean, even today, continues to evoke that legacy as a way of saying that France is a racist society, the United States is a racist society. And even though, you know, I mean, James Baldwin in particular um, was very clear about the racism that existed in France in conversation with the racism he experienced in the United States. Um, and the other thing I'll say about that, and you know, I'm not saying I'm on the same level as James Baldwin, but can hope. But um, what I also want to take from his work and I hope that I'm contributing to is not creating this sort of um, hierarchy of, you know, the U.S. is more racist or France is more racist, but rather talking about how racism is manifest in differently organized societies, particularly against people racialized as black. Thank you for that reflection. This is also an interesting aspect of how the racialization is a social construct to the point that mm-hmm. it will change according to the context. And this is right. something that I would like to, to throw the ball to Adam because, uh, a few years ago, I, I was at University of Leeds, uh, doing my PhD and he went there to deliver a talk. It was a round table about something about race. I don't remember what it was about, but, and I don't remember who was in the round table. I know you were there and you talked about something that stuck to me because at the time I was reflecting about my work, which was on, on black Brazilian women and how this racialization is changing according to the context. So you travel and you are black and then you go to South Africa and you are, you have a different, uh, racialized you are identified or you racialized in a different way and that's that's what you were talking about then i'm sure that uh we changed in our reflections of course but since race is such a, an important aspect in how you denounce the colonial legacy in the uk how is blackness seen in the institutions in the british institutions for you And I'm going to explain my question. I see that the colonial legacy is marked, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is marked in as a 
Black Caribbean, Black African, right? And for in my experience, it looks like a very hegemonic narrative of blackness. If you're not one and another, you are the black other. And the systems of othering and the hierarchy that you have also in nationality, which is something that Jean talks about, right? The weight of nationality in that racializing process and the weight of blackness is so complex. So I don't know how that comes up uh, in your reflection. How do we how do we manage to situate that in the British context, knowing that the police knows who who is black? It doesn't matter what what is your passport. So I am black Latina. I am not in the census. I'm not. I am the black other in the census. But for the police officer, I am going to continue to be black. So could you talk about this a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, and I think that um, uh, Jean's comments really help us to think through those questions, particularly as a black person based in America writing about uh, race and blackness outside of America. I think it's such crucial work, partly because the United States as the kind of global hegemon means that black people outside of the United States can sometimes be, um, uh, it can be very easy sometimes to collapse our conceptions of blackness into this uh, US experience. And so thinking about the complexities and the unevenness of race and blackness, I think is so, so crucial, um, both for us outside the US, but equally so for um, uh, African-American thinkers, African-American thinkers outside. And in the US itself. Um, and I think that one of the ways in which we can think about that in this British context is understanding races, not simply a social construct, but as Barna Hesse often says, race as a colonial construct. I think it's useful to think of it as a colonial construct because race is constructed differently in different colonial contexts because it serves different colonial purposes. Right? So, um, you will have the wonder of rule in somewhere like the United States, but not in Jamaica, because it makes sense to have as many black people, quote unquote, as possible in the US, where you have a very large white settler population who can discipline and control this um, property, this black property, in in a context of chattel, chattel slavery. Whereas in Jamaica, where you have a very small white population where they're living under the constant threat of a potential uh, black revolution, particularly when just across the water in Haiti, uh, such an event has indeed taken place, that it makes sense to inaugurate certain people um, uh, of Europe who have some European ancestry into an elite um, and therefore not necessarily racialized as black in the same way as they would be racialized as black in the North American context in order to create uh, different kinds of racial hierarchies in order to uh, maintain the uh, the racial order that exists there in the context of both chattel slavery but also, of course, colonization after the abolition of chattel slavery. And so Britain actually creates a whole series of different racial regimes across its different colonies. So Jamaica will be one colonial context. South Africa will be another colonial context. And Kenya will be a different one. What it means to be black in all of these different colonial contexts would differ in one way or another, uh, depending on the uh, the needs and the wants of uh, British as, a, as Britain as a colonial authority. And so here on the British mainland, in the academy, we have 
maybe two things which um, speak to these legacies. One of them, of course, is Britain's um, colonial amnesia, because there is this geographical dis- disjunction between Britain and its empire. It's, um, it's not uh, as in your face as it is in the United States, which is a settler colony. Britain can kind of pretend that racism is this thing that kind of happens um, in um, South Africa or the United States or Zimbabwe or Kenya or Jamaica, um, which bears no relation here in Britain. You know, they just speak English because of, you know, quirk of history that, you know, we probably shouldn't talk about here. Um, whereas in fact, of course, it's in tr- these, these legacies of racialization and racial hierarchy are intrinsically linked with British governance and British policy and British ideas. I think the other thing, of course, is related to these racial categories that you mentioned, right? Which are, um, on the one hand, seem to provide clear, maybe even scientific categories, black African, right? Well, that's very clear, isn't it? It's African people from this geographical place in the world, which we can identify on a map scientifically. Um, and they're, pe- they're people who are racialized as black. Right? And then black Caribbean, we can identify that on a map. All, all makes a great deal of sense. Right? But of course, things become more complicated. Right? So you have people who are also categorized as this thing called mixed race, quote unquote, in Britain, um, which is, which on the one hand, um, implies that some people are racially pure and some other people are racially mixed, right? which is very problematic in and of itself. Um, but of course, it also creates the impression that those people are not racialized as black. Um, which, when we think about people's experiences of racism, whether it be people like Mark Duggan, who was executed by the police, which led to the, the civil unrest of 2011, or if we look at general statistics on the, the Similarities between so-called mixed-race people and black people, and incarceration and school exclusion, um, and a, a number of other indicators of um, uh, 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 racial violence and hierarchy. What we see is actually um, that what we see is that in, in a, through a lot of those indicators, people who are racialized as so-called mixed-race and people who are racialized as black um, have very, very similar experiences of uh, racial violence at the hands of the state um, and border regimes. What have you? So we, what I think that these these forms of these, these forms of categorization do, whether it's um, through institutions, is create the impression that race is something which is fixed, something which is um, can be easily and almost scientifically um, demarcated, um, and in fact, race is actually something which is far more slippery, uh, far far um, constantly changing, constantly shifting, uh, depending on the context, colonial or otherwise. Sorry, that was a very long answer. No, it's brilliant. It's actually, um, and I was mentioning those uh, categories, uh, as you as you said, the, the scientific, as they are so institutionalized and engraved in how even the census uh, measures the the population and how that is still a systematic way to, you know, people uh, sometimes embody their identities or or negotiate the the own positionality and blackness because we are creating co- counter narratives, but we also cannot see that that's not happening, right? So how do we situate that, and how we? I don't know. I, I, it's not even about balancing, but it's a constant negotiation uh, that needs to happen. But I wanted to go uh, and focus on the on the violence that you mentioned, the police violence that. Uh, 
it is happening at the institutional level, but there are some of the uh, racial violences that is authorized because of the institutional violence. And that's, of course, as you mentioned, the colonial legacy that is still perpetuating in our everyday practices. Um, there is a, a piece of news in the, in the US talking about the migrants from Haiti being captured as a rodeo. The pictures are shocking. And of course, I, I, I wanted to, to trace a kind of a, a impact. And when we talk about Black Lives Matter and the, and how we feel outraged and how we express that, uh, discontent with such an anti-black, uh, racism, um, how this is disproportionately affecting migrants in the UK setting, well, in the European setting, and also in the US. Would you be able to speak a little bit more about that in, in more like the, the current context in the US, Jean? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the sort of current situation of um, the violence against Haitian migrants. I don't really have um sufficient language, I think, at this point to like fully capture how horrific that is. Um, but I will just say that, you know, as it relates to well, I'll take two quick things. Um, as it relates to sort of Black Lives Matter um as a broader framework or uh, ideology for acknowledging black humanity, I mean of course this is part of that uh, this should be under that umbrella. You know, I think when I was seeing those images and a little bit that I've been able to read about it, it really speaks to also the crisis, the, the ongoing crisis of the bordering in general, right? And the question in the context of the United States of our sort of immigration laws, well, our immigration legislation has always been racialized. And then what we're seeing now, the policies of bordering only reflects, you know, just, it's just another manifestation of that very long history. And so thinking about these questions of, you know, quote unquote, legal migrants and illegal migrants, um, that construction is completely racialized construction. It's, it's completely made up fiction from the state. Um, and so you're only seeing that play out um, in this case. And the other thing I'll say is that one of the other things I've been struck by, again, thinking about the relationship between what's happening with Haitian migrants and, and Black Lives Matter is also the sort of, for lack of a better word, somewhat perverse uh, way that these images have been shared and broadcast. And I personally, I feel very uncomfortable about that and the ways in which we become, I'm thinking we as Americans, as um, our U.S. residents, uh, we become or are supposed to become desensitized to these images of violence against Black people. So if we're thinking, so in that sense, like we can decorately put in conversation these images of Haitian migrants being whipped by border officers on horses with the images that I saw I've seen a billion times in the United States of uh, George Floyd being killed, right? And the ways that those are supposed to be or have been like shared so much that we become so desensitized that we lack a very, uh, I would argue structural critique of what's actually happening. And we're also, I think also the sort of the sharing of these images also makes it so it's harder to have a kind of broader structural analysis of what's happening versus seeing the specific incidents. So just to go back to the George Floyd killing, I was really struck by the number of people who would share those images on social media, forgetting the fact that this is actually um, a relatively common occurrence here in the United States and more important and, and sort of equally importantly, you know, he's not even the last or more most recent black person to be killed by the police in the United States. But it's sort of like you lose that sort of big picture when you're just circulating these like images, you know, left and right. So that's not quite your question, but I just wanted to kind of bring that up because I think that also speaks to like 
how we acknowledge and, and recognize Black humanity more generally. Thank you for that. And also, um, this idea of uh, normalizing the suffering yeah. and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, as if it's something natural because right. that is the, the reproduction of the dehumanizing or mm-hmm. inhumane, uh, element mm-hmm. of how blackness is always portrayed. And right. Exactly. I think this is also a, an interesting dialogue of how the police is developing new strategies of policing mm-hmm. and surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, to keep that up to date, right? Mm-hmm. To keep that mm-hmm. uh, colonial remark or strategy always in action. And as we move towards uh, this technological uh, reality, this videos and these pictures are mm-hmm. live in your in your feed, right? And can, can I can I can I add I, something else about that? Though, sure, actually? sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I actually think what's interesting about it is that the, the technologies actually themselves are not that new. It's actually just sort of reusing old technology. So, you know, again, in the United States, you know, so now we have sort of, you know, ways that these images of George Floyd or the Haitian migrants can be circulated on social media. But a hundred years ago, we had lynching post- postcards, right? Like, so I think there's always been a sort of fantastical uh, element to anti-black violence in the United States. Um, and that's part of sort of how, well, that's one of the mechanisms, um, of how it perpetuates. And that's why I also think it's really interesting about, um, again, the images of Haitian migrants is that the actual sort of, um, technology or mechanism of the violence, if you will, is actually a really old technology too. It's not a sort of, you know, the actual sort of weapons are actually older weapons. So I think it's also really interesting to think about how, like, how much does it change even when so many things presumably change in U.S. society as it as relates to sort of bordering and race. So. Yeah, sure. And of course, having people being whipped is, I think it's, uh, it's mm-hmm. the old technology that is right. being right. updated. Yeah. Um, right. But I, I also wanted to talk about these updated technologies in terms of mm-hmm. technology and, oh, for example, here in the UK, they are taking the digitals without consent and they are uh, developing other ways of face, facial recognition and so on that I would like to actually ask Adam to criticize it or to just shed light on this uh, aspect in the British context, especially in regards to policing. So one of the ways I guess we're seeing policing change um, in or police racism develop new forms of surveillance or control or violence is through these this utilization of technology. And so some of them might be through surveillance, but as you already mentioned, facial recognition or other forms of biometric technology. So um, in parts of the north of England, they've been trialing the collection of fingerprints. So when somebody stops and searched by the police, they will also collect their fingerprints. Um, this isn't, and of course, this isn't legally mandated, but when people are in that kind of situation and they don't know their rights, and it's very difficult to assert your rights when you're surrounded by police officers, then their biometric data is collected. Um, for a long time, Britain has, British police have been collecting people's DNA, um, and in England and Wales, I think it's something like two thirds of, um, black men under the age of 30, um, are already on the police's DNA database. Um, because your DNA is collected and stored, even if you're arrested, if you're wrongly arrested, falsely arrested, arrested due to mistaken identity, you know, all charges are dropped, all of those types of things. Um, so we see these kinds of technologies uh, being used in ways which are, uh, are wholly um, uh, reproduce quite familiar forms of race. 
And I think there are maybe two things that are important about this that are worth highlighting. The first is that, particularly when it comes to these facial recognition technologies, a lot of the kind of response to it have said, well, actually, they're very inaccurate. So they're not able to identify, differentiate between different black people. Um, these uh, algorithms are clearly very racist. Um, but I think that's the wrong way to think about this, necessarily, because even if they were able to differentiate between different black people, I don't think that would solve the problem. The problem isn't that it's not able to effectively differentiate yeah. between different black people. It's the fact that it's a form of surveillance and technology that's going to be used to disproportionately, certainly, criminalise and surveil um, and impose violence and control upon black people. Um, and if anything, being able to differentiate between different black people will allow, will allow the state to do that more effectively, more or less. But the second thing that's, I think, really important is that I think similar to what Jean was saying is that actually a lot of these forms of control and uh, surveillance aren't wholly new. So if we think about Britain's uh, colonial history, it, it often employed forms of surveillance, just with my more rudimentary forms of technology. So, for instance, um, in India, things like the Criminal Tribes Acts, which were imposed in the 19th century, affect, um, actually tattooed the foreheads of large so-called tribes in India, which the British colonial administration um, identified as being predisposed to criminality or deviance, so that it could identify them more. The British colonial administration um, first identified uh, the fact that different individuals have um, unique fingerprints, which was, you know, Britain was the first uh, nation in the West anyway. China had uh, discovered it sometime before. But Britain was the first country in the West to identify that different people have different fingerprints. And they did this um, in uh, their colony of India. And it was again used to identify and categorise people um, in different ways and surveil them more effectively. We also saw it in uh, anti-colonial, during anti-colonial movements in places like Kenya and Malaya where, um, and Rhodesia, where camps, um, effectively labour camps and death camps in some contexts were set up, um, surrounded by barbed wire um, and, and where, where there were checkpoints where people had to carry passbooks. All of these were forms of surveillance to be able to better monitor, better surveil and better identify uh, colonised subjects. And so what we're really seeing here isn't a new type of racism. It's effectively racism being remade in different ways, utilising um, forms of technology, which in some ways are new, but some ways, in many ways, I think certainly reflects the forms of um, uh, technology and forms of surveillance which have been used in, in, in the past. Yeah, thank you. This is this is such a rich uh, information, set of information, because, um, again, as, as Jing said, uh, this colonial aspect of technology is not new. It's just being uh, refurbished according to the new resources we have. And considering this, uh, we are not talking only about the, the killings and the, the, the lives of these people, but we are talking about the community who stays and stays in grieving, stays in, in, in the struggle. But I don't want to say this only to capture this picture. I want to capture the entire, uh, possibilities of the black community, which is not, uh, only there, but thriving in and and going forward and building new narratives or counter narratives, if you prefer. Um, so in, in your research areas, in your teachings, in your reflections, 
what are the arguments and the elements in the in the disruption of this colonial setting that you find interesting or that you find solaced? Uh, is there something that captures your your heart, your your reflections, your eyes uh, a little bit more in terms of the resistance? Or maybe even further on, beyond the resistance. So maybe this is a bit of an obvious one, but I think it's a useful way of continuing our conversation about these um, kind of colonial and imperial connections. Um, but for me, I think one of the interesting things that's being things that's being done in many parts of the world is forcing those in positions of power, but also using political action as a form of political education um, for um, the communities affected by race and those in solidarity with them by identifying symbols of colonial history and imperial power. And so obvious examples of this would be um, the statue of Cecil Rhodes in um, the middle of um, the University of Cape Town um, in South Africa. Obvious examples might be uh, statues of um, Confederates um, figures in particularly the southern states of the US. Examples, of course, would be um, statues of people like Christopher Columbus, uh, which are often also uh, southern states of um, the US, as well as, of course, imperial figures like um, Cecil Rhodes um, in Oxford University. But I think also really interestingly for me, the statue of Winston Churchill um, in Parliament Square, um, who is fondly remembered as the leader of Britain, uh, as Britain likes to tell itself it saved Europe from World War II, all on its own, um, after France crumbled, with no help from um, its colonial subjects and certainly no help from those communists in the Soviet Union. And so what I think the targeting of these symbols of imperialism does isn't simply um, start some kind of culture war um, we want to replace symbols of nasty bigots with lovely woke millennials. But in fact, it, what it does is it forces us to have a conversation about where, the, what, the, what, how racism is rooted in these forms of colonial control and therefore is, isn't simply about prejudice or bigotry, isn't simply about institutions which aren't quite working fairly as they, they should, but actually about institutions which are constructed in a colonial context and therefore constructed to reproduce racial hierarchy and racial violence. And I think it's those forms of popular political education through political action which I think have sparked some of the most important conversations about not simply un historicizing racism, but also appreciating the colonial and therefore global context in which race. Yeah, I can I can just add, um, I completely agree with that. And, you know, sort of sort of this kind of colonial reckoning that's happening across Europe and uh, in some ways in the United States as well, and not just in terms of toppling uh, monuments or defacing monuments, but also sort of renaming um, a lot of institutions. And at least that's been part of the conversation here in the States. I think what I would say to kind of add on to that is also thinking about the attention in the last year or so to various anti-racist movements, protests, mobilization, sometimes under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter. But I think that that sometimes is a little simplistic. But nonetheless, I think it's... Um, 
I think what I find inspiring or interesting about it is it's also forcing white Europeans to acknowledge the long presence and history of black people as part of Europe, rather than um, the sort of dominant narrative that I often confront when I present my research of sort of, you know, Europe being white until like 1960, whatever. And now suddenly there's all these non-white people and people have to, and Europeans have to figure out what to do when, you know, obviously that's not true, but I think there often is a sort of conversations about race, multiculturalism, and diversity in France, and I would say the rest of Europe, always framed under this uh, framework of like newness um, versus sort of reckoning with and acknowledging the long presence of Black people as constitutive in the c- construction of now of what we now understand as Europe. And so I really see this moment as sort of forcing Europe to, to acknowledge the, not just the sort of um, contemporary presence of Black people, but the long history of Black people to the creation of various European societies. So I find that um, pretty inspiring to witness in this moment. And the last thing I'll say about that is I also, just in relation to that, I'm also really moved by the sort of thinking about the role of Black feminist activism as crucial to this moment, um, both historically and presently. It's crucial to this moment of saying, of documenting the presence of Black people and the role of Black people in the construction of Europe, but also in, you know, present day movements, present day anti-racist demonstrations and protests and the visibility of Black women in particular um, at the forefront of a lot of, a lot of this mobilization. Thank you, Adam and Jean, for such engaging responses as you remind us about the importance of identifying symbols of colonial history in the statues, the monuments that are reproducing the colonial power with the nuanced aspect of having black feminism most of the times at the forefront of those protests and very often being uh, erased or ostracized by the same patriarchal colonial power. Now, um, I would like just to trace a parallel with what is happening in Brazil actually for years now. It's the revisiting and the interaction with a monument called Bandeirantes. Uh, It is placed in São Paulo, Brazil, and the monument is representing the Bandeirantes. The Bandeirantes were the people representing the, the Portuguese crown to explore and expand the the Portuguese territory, right, in Latin America. Hence, Brazil being a continental country, right? Um, so during these explorations that they call explorations, they were fighting with indigenous peoples. They were responsible for the genocide of indigenous communities and the slavery of indigenous and African peoples um, alongside with the rape of indigenous and, and black women. Now, in this statue, we can see the Portuguese men on the horse being followed by a group of indigenous people uh, by foot, and is already representing the, who has the power, right? Uh, however, this statue was used to tell a tale of racial democracy in Brazil as if the Portuguese settlers, alongside with black and indigenous men and women, worked together to build the nation or worked together to have an equalitarian process of creating a society of its own, which raises not only the uh, suffering of indigenous and black peoples, but also 
the existence of these people because the entire institutions, as we know, may know, are built through and by coloniality and whiteness. So um, I would just like to say that um, as there is this anti-racist struggle, especially led by indigenous people in Brazil, asking for a plague, uh, offering a counter-narrative for the statue or a removal for the statue, or often, many times, interactions with the statue, whether it's painting or, or many other interventions. It is um, a very valid conversation that we have been having between the global south and global north and the demands for a more decolonial approach, if I may say decolonial approach or anti-racist approach to how the nation is uh, is seen uh, and uh, national identity constructed. Now, about this, uh, the, the initiatives of black women revisiting the statues, revisiting the colonial narratives, I just wanted to uh, remind everyone who is in Edinburgh about the Black History Walking Tour of Edinburgh, uh, led by Lisa Williams of the Edinburgh Caribbean Association. You can find more information online, but it is important to make a remark, as Jean said, about the the initiatives of Black women in this counter-narratives or in this anti-racist struggle that is resisting the colonial presence. So in this walking tour that is brilliantly curated by Lisa as it's part of her research, um, you will listen about the histories of those monuments around the city and places around the city that are insisting in reproducing the colonial narrative and the colonial presence in Scotland. So... And I would like to invite you all to read about it or check it out if you are in Edinburgh to learn more about the monuments, the buildings and the banks that profited because of colonialism and specifically the Scottish role in colonialism, in the British colonialism, which I think it's very important for our educational process as we understand a little bit more about the world and our positionalities in the anti-racist struggle. This takes me to the next question. What do you think nowadays would be the Black Atlantic? How can we raise conversations beyond the struggle, beyond the resistance, uh, in order to think together about a possible future or a decolonial future? Yeah, that's a really big question. So I'll just say just very quickly. Um, I think one of the ways that I'm trying to think through this now is thinking through this idea or this concept of a global blackness, of the ways of thinking beyond the borders of the nation state to think about what brings together or what what is common among all populations racialized as black around the world. I mean, I, I you know, in my work, I specifically think about 
you know, France and the U.S. Uh, or Europe and the U.S. But nonetheless, I think thinking globally, um, one of the things that I've been really struck by just the whole time I've been doing research on race in France is thinking through the ways that the experience, you know, even if the sort of uh, literal structures or laws might be different in different contexts, oftentimes there's a lot of commonality in the experiences, on the everyday experiences that people racialize as Blacks. We can think about, you know, the work that the police does, even though, you know, again, the police is structured very differently in France than in the United States. Um, and just, I mean, I won't get into the minutiae of that, but just to say that, like, even if the sort of um, actual structure of the police is different in both societies, the actual experience of being a black person stopped by the police or followed by the police or interrogated by the police is actually very similar. And again, this is not something that um, is uh, sort of a new observation. I mean, you know, James Baldwin himself wrote wrote about uh, this very this very fact. Um, and so I think, and I, I come to that kind of the way of thinking from, um, again, sort of the ways that I've been, I guess, interrogated about being an African-American doing the kind of research that I do. And oftentimes it's sort of like, well, is it the United States more racist than France? And then, you know, people in the United States say, is it France more racist than the United States? And it's sort of like, okay, this this is a very limited conversation that only happens when you're reifying the boundaries or the borders of the nation state as indicative for how people actually experience life, where I think the fact of being racialized as black, and I think this both um, in terms of the people that I do ethnographic research with, but also just my own identity as a black American, always are more, we've always historically been thinking or had to think beyond the boundaries of any nation state, beyond any sort of national state boundary as a way of understanding our lives and making sense of our lives. And I think relatedly as a way of resisting structures by the nation state. So I always, um, so I think these sort of, you know, is it better to be black in country A or country B, I think only sort of is, I mean, it's sort of, a, it's a really silly question that I get all the time, but nonetheless, <laughs> you know, I think it completely misses the point because what it means to be black, um, it's just, it's beyond anything that can be structured as a sort of nation state border. And again, like, these are very, um, these are old conceptions that I think just become and, uh, are just, you know, continually manifest in present society. So I've been doing, um, just for something unrelated, reading about sort of the, the negritude movement in France. And again, like that also with a conversation, not just among Black French people, but also, you know, uh, African American expatriates, Harlem Renaissance writers, writers from the Caribbean, from Africa. So I mean, I think there's always, in any definition of Black, there's always this global conversation that, you know, is much, um, ele- is elevated way beyond anything that we see sort of, you know, as sort of like, this is France, this is the UK, this is the United States. For me, when I think about the Black Atlantic, one of the things I like to think about is culture. Um, and I love to think about the different ways that black cultural formations refuse to be bound by national borders. Um, so if I think about the kind of music that's coming out of um, parts of West Africa, the moment, Afrobeat music, and how it's in having a huge impact on soca music in Trinidad or dancehall music in Jamaica, and how this is having a huge impact on Af- um, music coming out of North America, particularly hip-hop music, and how all of these um, different black diasporic um, uh, cultural uh, formations are in many ways impossible to pin down because they're being so heavily influenced by each other. I see a, what Paul Gilroy might call a convivial um, uh, black Atlantic formation emerging through these different forms of um, uh, uh, musical and dance and um, aesthetic um, cultural uh, phenomena. Uh, and this isn't simply which something which is, and sometimes this can often happen, which is something which is 
purely Anglophone, right? We're seeing a lot of Francophone artists, music coming from places like the Congo and, and Mali, having a huge influence on um, uh, Afrobeats music, which is emerging out of black people living in cities like Paris or Amsterdam or London or Manchester. And so we're seeing all of this music have a, a huge impact, I think, on the way that black people develop forms of identity, which are not um, confined by the nation states, but also, of course, creates, therefore, hybrid forms of black and identities, creolized forms of black identities, which I think also contribute to a, 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 a maybe a new different type of, of black Atlantic um, uh, thinking and being. Yeah, I I think that's a very inspiring inspiring way to think about that. There is an, a Brazilian author, black Brazilian author, her name was Lélia Gonzalez, and she said that we should all think about the possibility of creating a space called America Latina, which is mm. not Latin America, it's not the Caribbean, it's not Africa, it's not the Americas, it is our diasporic space to build this conversation. So this is the where the culture navigates, this is where we translate the affect of being in diaspora or staying or going back to, or it's not necessarily the geographical aspect of it, but it's also the, the way we identify and the way we build the new possibilities of being, the new possibilities of existing beyond resisting. Uh, so I think that's a very interesting way to think also about how, if we think about the institutional aspects of abolitionism, that we might talk about how we can think about the future, but we have, or we are already doing that when we think about America Latina, when we think about these spaces of conversations in which uh, these dialogues are possible or made possible, even if it's suspended in time and space and just for a short period of time. But these uh, utopic spaces or or futures are need to be happening at least in some moments of our life so we can make it in a more uh, consistent way a possible future uh, to a more permanent state of abolitionism. going to get to the institutional aspect of abolitionism because I think it would uh, be maybe too long but I would like to ask for any final thoughts regarding what do you think or expect for the future beyond resistance in anti-black racism or for blackness for the liberation of blackness whatever I think for me um what I consider maybe quite inspiring um, as well as quite urgent, um, maybe two things. Um, the first, the development that we've seen over the last couple of years in which both Britain and the United States, but other places in the world as well, have seen some of the largest anti-racist mobilizations um, in a generation, uh, right? Um, particularly following the murder of George Floyd. But I think a lot of 
cities and regions and towns and countries have been able to, to connect what's, what, what's, what the murder of George Floyd to the kinds of racial violence which are happening on their, their own doorsteps. Um, but I think something else that's happening, which maybe connects what we were talking about before with Haitian uh, migrants and the southern states of America, um, is the way in which a lot of these uh, black-led movements are becoming more cognizant of uh, the question of borders um, and talking about abolition of borders in addition to abolition of uh, prisons and the police. And I think it's this border abolition that I find particularly inspiring because it necessitates um, a form of internationalism, which I think is so urgent for any kind of uh, black liberation movement, whether it be uh, black people um, migrating across the Mediterranean um, uh, in the context of Europe or across um, the southern US border in North America, or of course what more often takes place, which is of course across um, state borders across the African continent and across different islands in the Caribbean and elsewhere, that I think really holds a, a really important piece um, to uh, the puzzle of developing a, a truly international uh, popular black movement um, of global solidarity and struggle for change. And I think it's the combination of those popular Black Lives Matter mobilizations, but connecting that to um, the abolition of borders that I see um, some of the most inspiring uh, organizing and activism in taking place. Yeah, I, I would, uh, I agree with that. I'm also, um, you know, hardened and inspired by the ongoing anti-racist mobilization. Um, but I do think, and I always feel kind of, I always feel kind of awkward answering questions like this because I think as a sociologist, I just not especially, or just personally, I'm not especially optimistic person. Um, so I do think that it's important to keep in mind that, you know, um, you know, while we're seeing a lot of, you know, really inspiring mobilization around some of the issues that Adam um, noted, you know, that oh, at least in the United States, and I actually would say globally, is often always followed by deep repression by the state. Um, and so I, I, I don't know um, if I'm particularly optimistic about, for example, the future of France or specifically the sort of fight of, you know, racialized minorities in France and Europe more generally, precisely because I think even as the mobilization uh, heightens or increases, so too does the state response to that mobilization. So I think, you know, it's it's sort of one of these things that we have to constantly be vigilant about because it's, it's uh, and sort of never let up because I think that, you know, the sort of tools of the state to um, to harm Black individuals don't stop either. Thank you both for your final remarks. As Gail Lewis says, it is important to deconstruct the dream work in her article, A Question of Presence. And as much as we have the political responsibility to think about a future that doesn't exist yet as a political way to build decolonial possibilities, we also have the remarks as Jean uh, reminds us, to make sure we are grounded and not romanticize this decolonial possibility, this anti-racist possibility. So I would like to invite the voice of Audre Lorde or the poem of Audre Lorde. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm afraid you're going to have to stick to my voice until the end of this episode. <laughs> and I would like to read to you the Brown Menace, or Poem to the Survival of Roaches. Uh, 
But as a pedagogical tool, I wanted to introduce this poem with a dissertation by Alexis Pauline Combs. She wrote a, a an, an interpretation of this poem, and I would like to introduce here for all the, the readers who might not be familiar or might be familiar with Lord's poems. And Alexis Pauline Gum says, in this poem, Lord marks the brave move of literalizing the underlying metaphor of the dominant narrative of racism underneath the dismantling of welfare and the coerced sterilization of black women and women of color in the global south. Using the figure of the roach, Lord brings the rarely admitted narrative of public policy into view, the description of the persistence of black life unbound by the limits of the patriarchal family or the internalized values of capitalism is what everyone fears is actually is. Invincible, vermin, roaches running all over, dirtying everything. So with that support, I would like to read you The Brown Menace, or Poem to the Survival of Roaches, by Elder Lord in 1973, on the book Undersong, Chosen Poems, Old and New, Revised. Call me your deepest urge towards survival. Call me and my brothers and sisters in the sharp smell of refusal. Call me. Roach and presumptuous, nightmare upon your white pillow, your itch to destroy the indestructible part of yourself. Call me your own determination in the most detestable shape. You can become friend of your own image. Within me, I am you, your most deeply cherished nightmare sculpting through painted cracks you create to admit me into your kitchens your fearful midnights your values at noon into your most secret places hating you learn to honor me by imitation as i alter through your greedy preoccupations through your kitchen wars, through your poisonous refusal to survive, to survive, to survive. Thank you, Adam and Jean, for such a wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure to be here with you recording this episode. And thank you all the listeners for engaging with our conversations otherwise.